You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. So, why did I choose to bring this to you? What I'm actually preaching on is the second half of those two passages. You may have noticed that there are two quite distinctive sections in that, the first being about divorce and the second being about children and the kingdom. When I first started planning this sermon, I was quite intent to talk about divorce. Now, that is a difficult subject to preach on first time around, but that wasn't what put me off. As I was reading through the passages, slowly but surely, um, I started to realise that divorce was not what I was meant to preach about today, that children in the kingdom was what I was going to preach about today. And the reason why that is, is because I started last week with, um, as I was leading, I brought Grace up to the front, you might remember, and endorsed the children's workers out the back and all the work that they do. That's combined with the fact that actually we've been talking a lot about children recently, mainly because Mark seems to have a bee in his bonnet about it, as does Jesus. So I thought, with those two things combined, why should I not do it this week? So what I'm bringing to you is um, verses 13 to 16. Just as a separate point as well, as I was preparing this sermon, as you might expect, um, it started out all right. Um, Yesterday evening, as I was finishing up, I started to feel quite ill. Um, Just sort of a bit coldy, fluey. generally a bit under the weather. You know, the start of something you're about to get. So Hannah prayed for me and basically said, this is not acceptable. You're due to preach tomorrow. God can heal you of this and you will preach tomorrow. I prayed much the same thing because I was slightly concerned that perhaps this was God's way of telling me that I shouldn't be preaching tomorrow. (laughs) So what I said was, if you want me to preach on this, then I will be well tomorrow. I'll feel fine. And here I am feeling fine. Um, Maybe, yeah, Yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? So that I consider to be an endorsement of what I'm about to say. So all those things combined, I feel pretty confident about what I'm about to bring you. So let's crack on then. The context of this verse, just to be a bit of a whistle stop um, of of where this verse sits in regard to what we've gone over before and perhaps what will follow. So Jesus has just entered Judea and began to teach, as he regularly did, just moving from one place to the other teaching. So this is a switch from the private discussions with the disciples that we've just had into something a lot more public. He was being, again, publicly confronted by Pharisees wanting to undermine him and successfully battered them off. So altogether, a usual day for for Jesus. Probably stressful for anyone else in those circumstances. I would also suggest that this is a recurring theme. Jesus and Mark, in writing the gospel this way, are trying to make a point. There's something important about Jesus, about about the nature of children and Jesus' opinion of them, and we should take note of that. It's also important to note that the passage preceding Mark 10, Jesus has mentioned little children not once but twice, albeit the the little ones that he mentioned about um, millstones being thrown into the sea aren't necessarily children, but still of a as I'll discuss later on in the sermon, the same group of people in reality. So he's talking about them quite regularly and in quick succession. So that's not to be ignored. So then what do I want to bring you from this? Well, as all good sermons have, this has three points. Um, 
Not deliberate, I assure you. It just came that way. Um, so the three points that I'm going to bring you. The first is we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. There is no debate about that. Jesus is quite plain. Parents, this is the second point, parents must bring their children to Christ. We have no option in that either. And lastly, the Lord's heart is not just for children. When he speaks about children in this verse, it's about a much wider group than just children. It's about all the vulnerable and weak. So as we discuss children, just have that in the back of your mind. So I will start with point one. The message is quite clear because Jesus reiterates the same thing twice in just one passage. In verse 11, he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, these being children. And in verse 15, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. He also confirms the importance of what he's about to say by preceding it with truly, I tell you. Now, Jeff and um, well, anyone else that likes Hebrew or Greek will be very happy with this. Because I looked up the Hebrew for this in my research, and the Hebrew for truly I tell you, some of you might know, is Amen. Now, as far as I can tell, Jesus is the only person to ever start a sentence in the Bible with Amen. The reason he can do that is because he is the only person with authority to do so. We can agree with him in our little broken human ways and think that's a great idea, but Jesus has full authority. When he says Amen before a sentence, He really means it. What he's about to say is extremely important and we should listen to it. So when he says, truly I tell you, he means truly I tell you. There's no ifs, buts or maybes about it. So then, what does he he mean when he says we should receive the kingdom of God like a child? So the the Greek word here, Jeff, very impressive, for child... um, suggests a young child, not just any old child. We often think of childhood as extending maybe until, what, 16, maybe early teens. You would consider someone to be a child. But what this is talking about here is young children, the most vulnerable of children, those that aren't able to take care of themselves. So this sort of indicates what Jesus means. What he means by children is people with soul dependence on him. He also means those with the lowest possible standing in society. We've already heard from Mark 9 that those willing to take the lowest position are the greatest in heaven's eyes. A young child is destitute of ambition, pride and arrogance. And on the contrary, some children, most children, are characteristically humble and teachable. They aren't prone to, prone to pride or hypocrisy. Of course, to counter that, children are easily fooled and led astray. You can tell them that the music on an ice cream van only plays when they run out of ice cream and they will believe you. You can do lots of things like that to fool a child. Um, So they're often not the most reliable of people. But that's not what is meant by having a childlike faith. Jesus promoted a humble, honest faith in God and he used the innocence of a child as an example. Emulating the faith of children, we just simply take God at his word. If he says it, it is true. As children trust their earthly fathers, we should trust that our Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. The best of all these gifts being our sonship and entry into the kingdom. Similarly, although it is obviously true because Jesus said it, that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Once part of the kingdom, we are called to grow. We are not called to stagnate and remain a child. 
For those of you that have reared children, you'd be extremely frustrated if you were still changing a nappy at age 17. So, we're not called to just stand still. There, is, there are unique qualities about children that we must possess to enter the kingdom and must continue to possess. But like I said, once part of it, we are called to grow. And this isn't just me making it up, because what I'm going to do to you is just read out a couple of verses that would confirm this. Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. 1 Peter 2, 2-3. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. 1 Corinthians 10 to 12. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. All those verses to me confirm that we are not to remain children. If I'm the same this time next year as I am today, something has gone terribly wrong. I want God to grow me. I want to be hungry for God. I want to progress. I want to be better at the things that I'm not good at now. I want to be better at the things that I am good at now. Altogether, I want to grow in Christ. So how do we reconcile these two things? Entering the kingdom as a child and growing in our faith. I would suggest it's simply to recognise now and forever that God is our father and that we are and always will be his children. Never let go of that complete trust and dependence that defined our childlike entrance to the kingdom and always be looking to the father for guidance and instruction on how to grow and mature in your faith. My obligation to Grace doesn't finish when she's capable of looking after herself. I don't know what age that will be, whether you would suggest when they move out of the house, which in current days could be 30, maybe 40, 50 years old, or even never. But that obligation to father continues. I will teach her as a baby now. I will teach her as a toddler. I will teach her as an older child, as a teenager and into adulthood, but very, very different things. My pleasure is to see her grow into something more than the sum of Hannah and I. I want her to be an individual. I want her to achieve things that we've never achieved. And I'm there to facilitate that. And that is exactly what God wants to do for us. He always wants us to remember that we are children of God. He wants us to be fully dependent on him forever. So that's how you reconcile those two things. Childhood in Christ is never, ever to be given up. We are always to remain humble, malleable and teachable as long as we go on. But God doesn't want us to reach the kingdom as children. He wants us to reach it as adults. I think it was at Murray last week, who was, oh no, it was Lisa in fact, that talked about building up treasures in heaven. Children don't have many treasures in heaven. They've yet to achieve that much, but God still loves them as much. But I would love to reach heaven with with treasures unnumberable. And that's what we want to do as an adult. My next challenge 
And perhaps this is the most difficult one, really, because I'm talking to myself as much as I am to you. This challenge is particularly for parents, of which I am one now. So I say this as someone convicted as much as you will be convicted by what I'm about to say, and I don't bring it lightly. lightly. Um, But the second point, parents must, and I've got must in capitals on my sheet, just because I think it's that essential, bring their children to Jesus. In this passage, it was the disciples that were preventing children from coming to Christ. In our setting... It's often parents that will prevent children coming to Christ. Not in the same way, not by standing in their way or putting them away, but in the way that we act and what we do. Often as parents, we can be the ones responsible for holding back our children. And we need to guard against that because Jesus isn't messing about with this. It's not unknown for him to show his displeasure with Pharisees or to um, get angry at crooked salesmen and turn over tables outside the temple. But it was relatively unknown for him to get angry at the disciples. It's not a a regular occurrence. Normally, he's a little bit disappointed, perhaps. But most of the time, he is, as as you would expect from a father, patient with them. He'll reiterate the same thing over and over again. But on this occasion, he didn't. It says that he was indignant. He wasn't mildly put out or annoyed. He was indignant. This should tell you how seriously he is taking what he's saying. He doesn't want to just rebuke them gently. He wants to show them that what they're doing is damaging. Now, the reason he was probably so annoyed is because, as I mentioned at the the start, he'd only just got over telling them that they aren't the greatest in the kingdom and that children or childlike people are. He'd only just done that, according to Mark's version of events, So fresh in their minds, they've just been rebuked gently already for having a debate about when Jesus dies, which of us is going to be the greatest, which is an insult anyway. He gently instructs them saying, none of you will be the greatest unless you are more like a child. So fresh off the back of that, they again decide to stop children coming to Jesus. So they know very well that Jesus has a heart for children and that they are not to stop children coming to Jesus, and yet they get in the way. Also, more importantly, the reason why he's annoyed is because he loves children. He's not just annoyed at the disciples. He loves children, and they have prevented the children from coming to them. His heart broke for them. He wanted to know them at that point. He didn't want to wait until they were adults, until they could contribute something to him, until they were of value. He wanted to know them then. There is no reason for delay in coming to know Christ. Albeit you may not understand it as a child as well as perhaps an adult would, but that is no obstacle to you coming to know Jesus. And what the disciples were doing is delaying these little ones coming to know him. (coughs) Which, if we consider that we are not just saved so we can go to heaven, that we are actually blessed in the time that we spend on this earth, what you're denying people is an incredible gift that they can have while they're alive. So why wait until you're 30 and you've committed most of your sin already and are feeling awful about your state in life? Why wait until that point when you could be saved at age 
four, age five, age six, and be reconciled with God at that point. What a blessing it is to know God from an early age. What mistakes could we avoid? What, what pitfalls could we walk past if we knew Christ at an earlier age? For those of you that did know Jesus at that young age, you'll probably testify to that. How much have you been saved from that you wouldn't have been had you been allowed to wander into the wilderness compared to those of us that may have been saved slightly later in life and look back on it now and go, what a, what a waste of time. What a waste of time that first 20, 30, 40 years was. What could I have achieved in that time that I didn't get the opportunity to? So my challenge here is, dramatic pause. <laughs> Parents, don't be those disciples. Church, don't be those disciples. Grandparents, aunties and uncles, godparents, older siblings, younger siblings, anyone with any sort of position in the rearing of any child, don't be those disciples. Do not stand in the way in any form at all of children coming to know Christ. Any Christian or Christian institution with any sort of input to a child's upbringing should take Jesus' words very seriously. We must not, that's also in capitals in my notes, stop children coming to know him. By definition, this also means that as much as we're to not stop them coming to know him, there's a few double negatives here, as much as we're not to stop them coming to know him, we should also be dedicated to ensure that they do know him. Simply not being a barrier isn't enough. Just moving out of the way is not enough. We are to be facilitators, not just people that let them pass by. That isn't what we're called to be. So, how do we do that? Well, one of the primary ways we do it in this church is by sharing our worship with them. Nick, not knowing what I was um, preaching on today, he thought I was preaching on divorce, so perhaps he wanted a few jolly songs to begin with, (laughs) just to raise people's spirits. Decided that actually, you may have noticed, it's it's relatively formulaic, the the two worship songs for children on a Sunday. He chose to do three today without knowing that I was preaching on children, which I think is lovely. That time at the beginning of church is not to be written off as a time... Oh, it's just for the children's entertainment. That is absolutely not what it is for. What it is for is to share our worship with them. So although they may not always concentrate, they may not always look engaged with the worship in the way that we want them to, they are still looking around and seeing a church of people worshipping. So that is one of the primary ways on a Sunday morning that we can involve children in this church. Show them what worship means. Because they will be worshippers like we are at some point in their life. And again, why deny them the option now to worship God? They need to worship as much as we do. They might not know it yet. They might not understand it yet, but we should definitely allow them to participate in that. We should also pray regularly for them and with them. We often obviously pray when they go out, which is lovely. And occasionally we will deliberately keep them in so they can pray for particular circumstances. They should learn from our prayer and by our prayer. We are a constant example to them. We must be showing them how to pray and ensuring that they know we are praying for them as a church. 
Now, I have got applications later, and I will be reiterating this one, but running a Sunday school, this is part of the reason why I went down this road this week of preaching on this, because last week I stood in front of you with Grace sat about here, and I endorsed the, the work that they do out the back while we sit in and listen to people like me and Jeff and everyone else preaching. They sit outside and they teach our children. That is no small task, as much as it is a a humbling and difficult task to preach to you is equally so of children. There's a huge, huge duty on them that I believe they all understand and they've gone in with their eyes open to that. So I really do endorse that children's work. There are obviously, um, Jeff will probably tell you, many theologies that would suggest children should sit in on the service and that they would somehow learn from what we do in the service. And that is probably true. But in this church, we allow them to be taught out the back by people that have a passion and dedication for that. So I really would endorse that time because that is the primary way through Turner's Hill Free Church that we teach children about God, that children's work. So it's a very important task. Perhaps most importantly, though, we should each individually be a reflection of Jesus to them. Children should witness Christ in us, whether it's their parents, grandparents or anyone else, in a million different ways. In short, we should be walking the walk and not just talking the talk. All that we say in here is great. All that we say outside of here is great. But they they will know us by our deeds, by our fruit. If we can sit through a sermon and just repeat nice, nice things to them, That's great, they may well learn from that. But the primary way that a child will learn from you is by imitating. So we need to be imitators of Christ so that they can be imitators of us and by definition, grow to be imitators of Christ. And God's message on this has not changed from Old to New Testament either. It's not that you would expect it to because God doesn't change. Proverbs 22, 6 Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, this is talking about um, Moses' commandments. Uh, Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you get up. Now that, for my life, pretty much covers everything that I do. There is no occasion... (laughs) I mean, just from sleeping and eating would probably cover most of my daily activity. Um, but there is no part of our lives where we shouldn't be teaching our children about Christ, about the laws of God. It's a worthy thing to do. That has resounded right through from the Old Testament all the way through to the New. So we should listen to it. It's our solemn and wonderful duty to lead our young ones. That much is clear. Billy Graham, who some of you will like very much, sum this up, I think, really well when he said, dramatic pause, the greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is not money or material things accumulated in one's life, but rather a legacy of character and faith. What an amazing thing. Often being in the sort of the the middle class arena that many of us will be in, the legacy that we leave is often, or part of it, is financial, is all of that. But 
for Christian parents, that's great to be able to do that. But the legacy that you should always seek to leave above anything else is that legacy of faith. How great would it be for me on my deathbed, hopefully in many, many years, to know that my children were saved, that that legacy continues and that their children will be saved and their children will be saved, all because of perhaps something that I started as a parent, that through me, many, many people would be saved. And I say that with humility. I'm not saying that it's because of me that that has happened. I'm saying it's because of God's work through me, through you as parents, as grandparents. That is entirely possible, that you could change the course of many generations of lives. How incredible a gift is that? More importantly, the most incredible and encouraging thing about this is that Jesus can outdo your expectations when you obey his command and wrap your children in love and in the love and knowledge of God. It didn't occur to me to begin with how the children even got there. I wrote it off. I don't know if you will have perhaps done that when you read when you read through the or when you heard me read it. But I just assumed the children were there. They weren't there. They were bought by their children, by their parents. They didn't just appear randomly. They weren't necessarily street children. Their parents had bought them there because, well, where else are they going to bring them? They'd heard this incredible, incredible preacher. They maybe had a better knowledge of who Jesus was at that point than the disciples did because they just wanted their children to come to Jesus. So their parents bought their children to see Jesus. They simply wanted them, wanted him to place his hands on them. There is no mention of any request for healing or of exercising demons or any real particular expectation from the parents. They just wanted Jesus to touch the children. Whatever the reason was for them bringing them there, he outdid their expectations. What does it say? He took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. It wasn't a part... You know when the Pope visits any sort of major town or city, often people will bring children to him to be blessed. I've no doubt he takes great pleasure in that, but often, due to the numbers... It's a cursory, quick hand on the head, off onto the next one. Jesus wasn't about that. He wasn't simply performing a, a duty, a task, by going, all right, I'll just quickly touch them. They can touch the corner of my gown, whatever it might be. He sat down with them, he embraced them, and he blessed them, which is no small thing. Jesus was busy. We hear in Mark, he, he's moving from town to town, preaching, getting attacked by Pharisees, getting challenged all the time. He's got stupid disciples that keep asking stupid questions. He's got more than enough to deal with. And yet, he sits down and he makes time for children. He embraces them. Picture that. The, the author of creation, the son of God, sitting down, just cuddling a child because he loves them. So please don't let us miss out on helping our young ones to know Jesus. He can do it all without us, and he does often do it all without us. But his delight, his love, is in us participating with him. 
And what an honour it is to be part of that, as I've already said. What an honour it, it is to bring our children to the knowledge and love of Christ. And to see them grow from children into God-fearing, God-loving men and women. What a blessing that is. Lastly then, um, and this I think is a whole sermon on its own, so I thought, well, I could do one or two things. I could probably preach for an hour and a half and cover it all off, or I could just do a quick cursory um, cursory check on it. So I've gone for the, the cursory look. The Lord's heart is for the children, but it is also for all those who are vulnerable and weak. Now, although I wanted to specifically bring out God's particular command regarding children, I believe Jesus is also speaking about a bigger group than children in this passage. In Jesus' time, and probably actually to our shame up until the mid-20th century, children remained one of the lowest classes in society. They had no rights, they had nothing to offer society, they were a burden until they could work, which back in the Victorian ages probably would have been about five anyway. But they were essentially useless to society. Childhood was a privilege of the rich and wealthy. And even they didn't want to look after their children. They simply sent them off somewhere else or someone else could raise them. So children were really not well considered. So when Jesus talks about children, he could equally be talking about any vulnerable, oppressed or overlooked group of people on the fringe of society with no rights and no one caring for, her, for them. In our own society, this could be the poor, the infirm, the mentally ill, the drug addicts, basically a huge number of people. And all that I said about bringing children to the love and knowledge of Christ remains true too of this group. We are not to prevent anyone coming to know Jesus Christ. That's not our job. The occasions the occasion of Jesus welcoming children is equally matched by him healing lepers, again, outcasts, speaking to the woman at the well, an outcast, eating with tax collectors, although they did it to themselves, outcasts, having his feet washed by Mary, who may or may not have been a prostitute, an outcast, amongst many, many other examples, he was constantly looking for those that people would ignore. That being the case, I want to make it clear that we are equally obligated to not be an obstacle to those most vulnerable people coming to Jesus. This doesn't mean that we accept sin or change God's word under the guise of removing barriers or being more accepting, which I think is a common theme of the church moving forward. Rather than inviting people in, we simply remove obstacles and say, it's fine, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what position you're in, we don't want to be an obstacle to you. That isn't what we're required to do. But it does mean that we should never stand in the way of these people coming face to face with Jesus for him to change their lives. We are not the doorkeepers of God's kingdom. We are the people doing the invitations on behalf of the king. All we can do is invite people in to know Jesus. His work with them is between him and them. If they choose not to accept it, that's on them. But we are not to decide who can enter the kingdom and who can't. What are the applications then 
I've tried to keep these relatively brief. I think I've covered maybe a few of them as I've gone on. But someone often told me when I was writing essays, the best form of essay, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. I think that seems to do quite well for me. So that's what I'm going to do for you. I want to leave you knowing what I think are the key applications from this. What do I want you to remember as you leave the service today? First and foremost, to parents, be Christian parents. So our biggest critics, people like Richard Dawkins and the like, being Christian parents looks an awful lot like indoctrination at worst, or being pushy parents at best. That isn't the case. Take no note of people like Richard Dawkins who would insist that you're damaging your child. You are not. You have something of great, great value, which you hopefully understand. Why would you not share that with your children? The consequences of our children not knowing the Lord are severe. This isn't something that I bring lightly, but it's something we should be aware of. Our children, your children, think of them now, could be facing hell if they are not saved. That is the outcome of them not knowing the Lord. Let's put it in black and white. It's often distasteful to talk about that. People are afraid of that. But that is the reality. In light of that, the minimum, the minimum that we could and should do is pray continuously with them and for them all the time. Never stop. Even when they are far, far away from you as perhaps adults that have travelled a long way from knowing God and knowing you, the least you could do is pray for them. When they're young, talk about God as much as possible. Make him part of their daily lives. One of the best, one of the most encouraging talks I've had on this topic was by Steve and Esther Upple. You may remember them. They did a talk at Life in the Spirit. And I won't, maybe I can try and find it for you if you'd like to hear it, but I won't, I'm not going to reiterate it. But they essentially just shared with everyone at Life in the Spirit how they go about their lives sharing God with their children. And they did an awful lot. It was a real challenge because they sat, had meals with them. They asked at the end of every day, what have you done that would displease God? What can we pray for you about and for? It was a really, really challenging talk. And it wasn't them going, we've got it all stitched up. We've got it right. Everything else is, anything less than this is wrong. They were just putting forward an example of godly parentage. Now that will apply differently to each one of us based on our availability. Steve and Esther happen to work a lot from home and have a lot of free time in the evening, so they have that opportunity. But we should make every opportunity where possible to talk about God with our children. Bring them to church. You have a family here that can support you in your areas of weakness. If you're not great with teaching your children, well, we have teachers out the back that can do that. I'm not saying that that is your option to shirk responsibilities. Absolutely not. But we are ultimately a family. We all have a certain amount of accountability for each other's children. We should all be teaching one another's children. 
that may look slightly different depending on the circumstances. I don't suggest for a second that you start um, chastising people's children behind their parents' back. Um, but we all have a duty to identify areas that we can teach and lead our children in. So bring them to church because it's the best place for them. It may not be perfect, but it's the best thing that we have. They need to know that this is a place where God meets us. And if they never come, they'll never know. So bring them to church. Just along those lines as well, I said earlier that I'm a relatively new parent. parent. Making up words like Jeff now. A very, that's Greek for parent. Um, I'm a relatively new parent, so I have not much experience in this area, but... I would love to pray for any parents or grandparents or anyone with any childcare responsibilities that feels the weight of this message. It's no easy task to, to look after children, to teach them about God and raise them knowing God. It's, a, it's a, probably the biggest task that you'd ever, ever possibly have, which is why God sets up marriage to try and put some form of support network in that you can do it as a couple rather than just going it alone. Everything God has set up is to try and help us raise children. So I would love to pray for you if you feel burdened by this. And please pray for me. I feel burdened by this. It isn't an easy task. And Hannah. Yeah, we don't yeah, we don't raise parents raise kids alone. Yeah, pray for pray for us us both as we raise Grace. She's she's little, she's not learnt too much yet. So we've got a long, long way ahead of us. But it'd be great to Pray for each other in that respect. Next up, church. I don't think you've avoided my gaze. Church, you should love the children. I said earlier, if you if your skill set lies in working with children or you have a heart for children, consider volunteering for the youth work on Sunday. Murray, who leads it up, and Joe, who leads up the, the, the little ones, they really need your help. It's not. This isn't. This isn't a small plea for assistance. This is a massive plea for assistance. We don't just want people to fill seats. We're not looking for that. We're looking for people with passion for teaching children. So if that is you and you've been on the fence about it, then please do come to one of the, the leaders and just ask if you can volunteer for that. Because again, what a privilege it is to be part of that. Also, be an example to children when they're in the service. Like I said earlier, show them how to worship. Model how you would want them to behave in your own actions. And lastly, welcome them and show them that they're valued. Children aren't, and I I stole this actually, Hannah gave me this quote, Kathy, from you yesterday. Children, and I loved it, children aren't just the future of the church. They are part of the church now. We're not waiting for them to be able to contribute to the church. We're not merely just passing time until they can be the new elders, the new worship leaders, the new whatever. They are part of the church now, a vital part of the church. If the children weren't here, I dare say we'd be a horrible, horrible church. They bring a life into the church that no one else can bring. So welcome them in that respect. Don't ever look on them as though they are something to be put out the back just so they don't interrupt our precious service on a Sunday. They are of extreme worth. Lastly then, 
I think lastly, no, second to last, penultimately, how do we reach the least? This one I've left open-ended because I don't have an easy answer for you. I am not here to give you the answers. I'm merely here to pose the questions, maybe with some suggestion of answers. So the need for this to reach the least may not be quite as obvious as that that we have towards children, because children, if you have born children, you can rarely get rid of them. So they are always in your face. But for those vulnerable people in society, often they are easy to overlook because they're simply not in your vision or even your peripheral vision. We live in a primarily middle-class area, but don't for a second think that that means that these people aren't there. They're just hidden in a veil of middle-classness. They aren't not there. Just look out for them. So the first possible application then is walk around with your eyes open, seeking God's guidance. If we're brave enough to walk around with our eyes open to these people and to seek them out, just as Jesus would, we will find them. And when we do, and this is the application, be prepared to exercise a huge, monumental, miraculous amount of grace when these people enter your lives or the church. Jesus wouldn't simply abandon people because they're difficult to deal with or they don't conform to how he would want them to behave. He would pursue them to the ends of the earth. We in our weak and broken nature will often discard people quite quickly when they prove to be too difficult to deal with. We absolutely should not be doing that. We should be seeking grace and guidance all the more when we find it difficult to deal with those people. Also, visit the sick and infirm. They are part of the body and should never be forgotten or overlooked simply because they can't meet the service on a Sunday. We have a lot of people in this church that are unable to make the service and it is our God-given obligation to go and visit them and show them that they are still part of the body of Christ. They are not to be forgotten. So if that is a task, although I believe it is for everyone to do, if that is something you feel particularly gifted to do, then put yourself forward. Be that person that will always go out and visit the sick and infirm because we cannot afford to ignore them. And in case you want that duty reinforced, we had the privilege of going to um, Pete and Jackie's on Sunday as an eldership meeting. And they brought to us, um, I think it was Matthew 25. And um, that sat with me all week. And Nick raised it again this morning when I was going over my sermon. And I didn't have this in. I, it it mulled through my brain. I didn't have it in the sermon until this morning when I quickly put it in. But this sums up our duty. Then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. There's a lot that precedes that, a lot of duties, but that pretty much sums it up. Look for the least, help the least, because in that person is Jesus Christ himself. And he is asking for you to help. Lastly then, as I was planning this sermon, Hannah has had a ruler for a number of years. On it, it says frog. It's got a little frog on it. I would give you probably £50, not to Nick because he knows this, if you could guess what the acronym is. 
I won't actually give you that. Any, Jeff, you know. Fully rely on God. Yeah, and it seems really silly. You know, it's a it's a child's it's a child's ruler um, that just happens to sit in our um, in our little pot of pens and whatever. But as I looked at it, I thought, yeah, what a great way to end the sermon. It pretty much sums up everything I've just said. And I want to affirm that to you through Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Never let the arrogance or complacency of adulthood get a foothold in your life. Just as you came empty-handed to God on the day of your salvation, keep coming back to him in the same way, asking again and again for him to save you. We are and will always be a work in progress until the day of the Lord's return. But we should still seek to be more than children on that day. Amen. Amen.